Good to be back with you this morning. Thank you for your prayers. We uh, made it uh, apparently safely, uh, unless I'm, uh, you know, non-asymptomatic, back from Texas. Uh, it was wonderful seeing Hannah and Tom and worshiping with Redeemer uh, Presbyterian in San Antonio, uh, Texas. And uh, just a note for those who uh, are aware of various things going on within the PCA, their pastor uh, will be heading up to my alma mater, uh, Covenant Seminary, to become the new president there. And so you can be praying for Redeemer in San Antonio, uh, different size uh, than CVP, but in the same boat uh, now embarking upon uh, search for a new pastor. So uh, we are not alone in, uh, in that um, need and challenge as a congregation looks, in their case, uh, replacing their founding pastor who planted that church uh, a little over 20 years ago. So, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, from your brothers and sisters in San Antonio, as it was communicated to me, I communicate it to you. We are a part of a large body of God's people uh, throughout time and space through the communion of saints. And it is in that context that we continue to wrestle with a book written to a communion of saints uh, the better part of 2,000 years ago in the city of Rome. And we have been looking at this as a whole, uh, that the book of Romans is written to a particular church facing a particular set of challenges, ones that are analogous uh, often to the challenges we face today, certainly not limited, but they are specific, and it helps, uh, at least I've been contending, for us to understand what was going on and what Paul is doing in his argument, in his letter, in his pastoral encouragement to the people in Rome. And we have been focusing or reminding ourselves, focusing is the wrong word, but reminding, trying to keep in the forefront of our minds, that we've got Jewish believers and Roman believers trying to come back together after a time of about seven years of worshiping separately because all of the Jewish believers had to leave Rome. And so you had seven years of development of a largely Gentile church. And now as the folks who are coming from a Jewish perspective and history, lineage and understanding of the law, as they reintegrate and as they seek to not end up with a Jewish church in one quarter and a Gentile church in another quarter of the city, but instead to worship together and to have houses and fellowships that uh, represent the unity in Christ and not ongoing cultural uh, and religious divisions. And so Paul has been going through in the book of Romans back and forth between talking about the particular plight of the Gentiles and the particular challenges of and blessings of being God's chosen people, the Jewish people who are given the law. And over the last few chapters, Paul has gone back and forth, clarifying at each new reiteration of the challenge how God has been at work redemptively and how all of what was happening focused and had to be answered in the Messiah himself. And we have already had some of the most beautiful reassurances that it is in Christ alone and that the Messiah through faith yet is our path to salvation and engagement in the kingdom of God. And yet he continues to build and unpack. And we're about to hit next week Romans 8, which is by all accounts one of the most glorious 
chapters celebrating the goodness of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit in encouraging and restoring. It is a symphony of praise and it is a culmination of so much of Paul's hopes and expectations and understandings of the impacts of Christ both for Jew and for Gentile. We are in chapter 7 and it is a chapter that no doubt we, well, let me put it this way. I've read hundreds of pages on these verses. And so in the next 15 minutes, I will summarize all of those things adequately. And, uh, no. But we'll hopefully hit a few things that will be an encouragement and hopefully refresh your understanding of what is very dense and uh, many people in exasperation in print have thrown up their hands and condemned Paul roundly for his convoluted sentences in Romans 7. But perhaps with a little context and a little prayer, uh, they will seem um, mildly less convoluted. But let's put the text in front of us first. We're starting at verse 13, and I will read through the end of chapter 7. Hear now God's word. Did that which is good then become death to me? Remember, context here is the law, the Torah. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, and I of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not uh, the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do the right, evil lies close to my hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members Another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words. You would be well to help us unpack them. 
uh, we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, your people would be encouraged. Lord, that uh, what can be clarified would be clarified, but Lord, not uh, simplified or changed. Lord, your ways are challenging in the midst of the convoluted impact of sin. And so we ask, Lord, that we would also take steps of faith as we seek to trust your wisdom, your law, and your plan in the midst of our lives. We pray, Lord, that whatever is said and done this morning in this sermon would be useful and true, and whatever is not useful and true would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. I am uh, bad at living in the moment. Uh, I am someone who mostly lives in the past. That is to say that uh, because of my love for history and my incessant desire to know why we are doing what we're doing and how we got here, I have a tendency uh, to live more in the past than I do the ability and the joy of living in the moment. But we all know people who have this wonderful ability to live in the moment and to capture the glory and the joy of just that singular moment. And it is a wonderful gift. And then we also know people who, in the midst of difficult times, are so wonderful to have around because they can see the future. And they can talk to us about the way things can and will be, and they have this amazing optimism and hope. And that is not surprising because oftentimes psychiatrists, psychologists, and folks who study people uh, will tell you that it's not unusual for humans to kind of break down into these three kinds of groups. That is to say, those who uh, spend a lot of time in the past, those who uh, are almost completely focused on the moment, and those who live in the future. And the reality, of course, that this shouldn't surprise us because we have a God who exists throughout time and space, and he lives, if you will, in the past. He lives in the present, and he exists in the future because he's the Alpha and the Omega, and he doesn't interact with time the way you and I do. And the challenge then for us as human beings is to make sure that we are not limited by our predisposition to either live in the past, the present, or the future. That wisdom will call us to know why we got to where we are, to have at that moment the joy of where we are, and to, in midst of difficulty or in planning, to have faith that God is moving in and through and that this is going someplace. I say, uh, use that illustration because at this moment, we are in Romans 7. And although Paul has alluded to and stated clearly what has already been accomplished in Christ, he is still helping the Jewish believers understand the pros and cons of what it meant to be the people of God. He is again talking to us about what he opened in chapter 2 when he talked about the Joy of having the law, and yet the challenge of being guilty of the things that we judge other people for. And he was speaking to the Jewish folks who would look to the right or to the left and say, Aha, I have the ten words, I have the ten commandments, I have the righteousness and knowledge of God, and yet we find in chapter 2 that we can all be guilty of doing the very same thing we judge others for doing. And so Paul is returning to this theme and talking to Jewish believers about the challenge of living under the law. 
You'll see the quote on the front part of the worship folder on your front page. That may or may not be new to you. The idea is that we are going to stress not so much the, the popular notion, the often argued for notion, that Paul's use of the word I is a description of his current existence in Christ as he struggles with life this side of the resurrection. We're going to contend that that is not what Paul is on about. That the I is not the personal I, but the royal I. It connects back to what he's already said in chapter 7 when he describes himself as a brother to his fellow Jewish by lineage and faith, brothers and sisters. He is identifying again with those who have been and are God's elect people and had been given the law and had been given the opportunity and the joy and also the tragedy of the law. Not that the law itself is a tragedy, but because of what it does to sin. The law in some ways is almost like flypaper. That is to say that it is a good thing, but it has its whole point, in some ways, is to attract and find all of the flies and stick them to it. The law has a way of bringing out sin. We've heard this already in Romans. It has a way of accentuating sin. It has a way of drawing the accuser, Satan, to it because it desires to accentuate rebellion against God and to undo all that which is good. The law, Paul is saying, brings sin into a heightened attack upon God's people. And we experience it corporately as God's people and we experience it individually as God's people, he's saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters. This is our lot Paul is saying. This is what has been our legacy. The Gentile legacy was different. They didn't have the law. They weren't God's elect. They were not the people by which the Messiah would come. And what the scholars argue about, and the, one that I, the ones that I'm going to contend with today, is that the law at that point, given to Israel, was absolutely a joy but also an intensification of the attack of sin on that group of people. That the accuser and the enemy, seeing the means by which redemption would come, and the wonderful, glorious exposition of the character and nature of God, is there anything that draws the enemy more than the attempt to pervert that which is most beautiful? Jesus barely gets out of the box in his ministry and the accuser calls him out in his time in the desert. Like Israel, Jesus at that moment in the wilderness deals with the temptations because he is the embodiment of the law. He is the embodiment of the kingdom. He is holy and righteous and sin is drawn to it in an attempt to pervert it can't help it. Sin was intensified in God's people. It was part of their burden, Paul is saying. We knew what to do, and we couldn't do it. 
We couldn't do it corporately, and I couldn't do it as an individual. The law, which is good, threw me into self-condemnation, and the condemnation of the world as hypocrites, as we read earlier in Romans. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because you know better and you still do the things we do. We do them because we're Gentiles. What are you all doing them for? You say you have something better. Why can't you do it? This is the burden of the Jewish people. Paul is saying in Romans 7. The eye is the intimacy of identifying with all of his fallen brothers and sisters in the midst of their wrestling with the intense pressure of sin brought by the privilege of knowing the character and nature of God through the law and through his dwelling amongst them in the tabernacle and in the temple. So we have then not primarily a description of what you and I go through, but a historical event, a reality for the Jewish folks that as they were wrestling with the implications of the Messiah and what it meant to be new creation, which we will address and enjoy in Romans 8, Paul brings to his crescendo the challenge and the burden of what it meant to be God's people and to bring and to attract sin so that the Messiah could, in one great blow, defeat a concentration of sin that we are often unnerved by when we read the Gospels. How many people are possessed by demons? How perverse are the Pharisees in their inability to recognize even the most basic sense of love God and love neighbor and their regular rejection of Jesus? The violence in which they cry out, crucify him on the day of his trial and his crucifixion. How much evil could be in that place? How could it become so concentrated? The law had attracted it. And they had lived with the great tension of knowing the war between the spirit and the flesh. The powers of uncreation and the promise of new creation. Sin seizes every opportunity with the law to impress upon us, apart from Christ, the hopelessness of our condition, the inability to act even as we would like to individually and corporately in line with wisdom and truth, what some cultures call virtue, and what Scripture describes as the nature and character of its Creator. It is interesting to note that this convoluted uh, little back and forth, or, or I don't know, it was uh, suggested that it tried to read verses, oh, I don't know, about 14 through 20 out loud several times and see how many times you trip over your tongue. Might be a good speech therapy. Uh, that isn't actually unique to Paul. 
And in fact, what we find, or what people who can actually read ancient Greek and know all the papyruses find, is that this was a means by which different kinds of Greek and Roman philosophers would express their own challenges in virtue. This is actually very common in the rhetorical poems of philosophers and pundits of the day. And there is a way in which, again, as we move into Romans 8, Paul is saying that tragically, because of sin's perversion of the law, because of the intense nature of sin pouring into the people of God, because it was attracted in its desire to pervert the law itself, that even people of the law end up in the same place as pagans. Confused and disillusioned in their inability to do that which they know would be better for others and themselves. And so he echoes the same phraseology. Paul does the same thing in Corinthians 2 in a different way where he describes all of the things that he has done when the Corinthians say, hey, we want a really great uh, apostle. We want a guy who has done these amazing things. And Paul uses the same structure as a Roman resume where people would say, I have done these great things. And uh, people who were leaders in the Roman uh, community would have this list of all of their successes militarily, politically, socially. And Paul uses that same structure and flips it completely on its head by saying, I have a great resume too. I've been, had the tar beat out of me about uh, 10 times. And one time I had to run out of a city, but I couldn't run out because the doors were shut, so I had to get lowered in a basket. And then another time, I got to see the third heaven. Not the first heaven, notice. Paul doesn't, the whole point is he didn't even get to see the highest heavens. Paul has a way of taking these things in the Gentile culture and uniting them with the gospel in a way that undoes. And in this section, Paul does his brilliant best to again with the Jewish and the Gentile folks say, in the end, apart from the work of the Messiah, we are all in the same boat. The law didn't solve our problems. In fact, it made it more acute, more intense. A good thing taken and perverted in my own flesh by sin. And there is a way then that the power of sin begins to do things in and through me that I do feel disconnected and disjointed from. It is the sin working in me. I am a divided human being. Where's the victory then? If we have a problem of sin, if we have the agency of the law inflaming and stretching God's people, how do we transition? Of course, 25 is yet another reminder, but it's going to be Romans 8.3 where Paul really begins to unburden us from the realities of Romans 7. Paul says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned 
sin in the flesh. We can't live in the past. Romans 7, both for God's people corporately and us individually. The corporate ways in which God's people abandoned the truth and the entire world, as Paul said, scoffed at the God of the Bible because of the lives of his people. Those are both corporate and individual realities. But Paul says that's not where we live anymore. Romans 7 is not true of us anymore because of what Christ has done for us in defeating sin and death. And you say, but EC, we all still feel tempted. I still do things I don't want to do. Yes. And although I cannot explain the details or the nuances, because I don't think Paul does, and I certainly am not smarter than Paul, uh, certainly and not inspired by the Spirit in the same way. But there is a category difference. In the same way that Jesus could say of John the Baptist, he would be least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever happens with the Holy Spirit, whatever happens with the destruction of sin and death, its defeat on the cross and the resurrection, you and I can and should interact with sin and temptation differently than people who just had the law. We're not in the same boat. And it is the lie of sin and death to tell us that we are. The law would love us, not sorry, the law, sin would love for us to believe we're still stuck in Romans 7. That nothing really has changed. That when Jesus got up, well, that maybe someday you're going to get wings if you're good and somebody rings a bell. Someday something better will happen. But right now we're still in Romans 7. It's a lie. It has to be. Otherwise, Romans 8 shouldn't be there. Romans 8 makes no sense if Romans 7 is still in force. Are we living in the past? Are we living in the present? Are we living in the future? If we don't know the past, we won't know the lie of sin about the law. If we don't know the present of who we are in Jesus, we won't know how to look forward to a right understanding of the future that has already started to come. Because Jesus rose in the middle of time and defeated sin and death. It isn't that I can't occasionally or regularly struggle with the seduction of Romans 7. Or the willingness to say, that's a place I understand. And we can corporately identify with. I'm not suggesting in any way that you shouldn't read Romans 7. Or that you shouldn't wrestle with the fact that sin regularly wants to pull you back to Romans 7. What I want you to say is I don't live in Romans 7. I live in Romans 8. Therefore get thee behind me. Sin. Because that's no longer true. I won't believe you when you tell me that it's true. I will cling to what Romans 8 says about where I live now. There is lots that would cause us to live in Romans 7 individually and corporately. 
And I can say that part of the modern application of it is when a group of God's people choose to identify themselves with the law, they will find themselves living in Romans 7. They will find themselves committing all of the same sins that Israel committed. They will confuse righteous living with self-righteousness. They will forget that it has always been by grace that they have been saved and will begin to imagine that perhaps the way they follow the law gives them a special covenant blessing. Our Puritan forefounders struggled with this as they landed on these shores, believing that God had created a new covenant with them as a special people in a special land. It has plagued us as as in all nations, fallen people create laws and act in ways that are profoundly unrighteous. And it regularly struggles then as a church to separate ourselves from the challenges of our history, which are very normal for pagan nations. And yet because we asserted a certain aspect of Romans 7 and the power of the law uniquely here, we struggle with how on earth could we both do slavery and be a free people, both honor the reality of being created male and female and not give women the vote. To struggle with our desire to see life expounded and yet to see the church encourage draconian immigration laws. You see, we struggle with it when we put ourselves uniquely back into a position of being God's covenant people as a nation and as a church and a state. And our greatest calling is to be salt and light in the midst of every nation. The beauty of the call of Ezekiel and Jeremiah is that God's people were in exile. And they were to work for the good of the city, to live out the realities of what it means to be God's people. But understanding all the while that they were ambassadors and not in charge. We can place ourselves back under the condemnation of Romans 7 as a corporate people, as a church, and as individuals. Sin would love to see us in that place. The enemy delights to have those times when the church and God's people regress. But it's not who we are. It's not what we're called to be. So what can we do? My encouragement, briefly, is to make sure you have friends who live in the past, present, and future. That you can sharpen one another with the hopes and the realities and the truths. See, if you deny your history, you don't understand the present. And you certainly have no firm basis for moving into a future. If all you do is live in the future, you cannot understand where you are or what is holding you back. And if all we do is live in the moment, we are blind to the fact that the moment is not eternal that God continues to move, that we will not stay here. That as delightful and joyous as it is, 
even times at Sinai were not times that lasted. There was always the encouragement even for Adam and Eve to go outside the garden and to do the work of the kingdom. There was always an expectation that things were not done. Even as we live in the joy of what is. Romans 7 is an encouragement because it again shines the light of what is true in Christ and protects us from embracing those things which could never and never were meant to be our salvation or our identity, but simply God's means of again joyously showing His redemptive power in Christ alone, who is the Alpha, the Omega, the Word made flesh, the eternal Son, the history, the present, because He is with us by His Spirit, and the future, because He is our King both now and forever. Let's live in His kingdom, in that reality, and not in the past. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you, Lord, that as new creations, we have the opportunity, St. Augustine said, to do good. Never greater degrees. Lord, we will never become perfect this side of glory. And there is no point because you already love us. You will do it in your time. But in this time, May we delight in the way you see us. And in ever greater degrees, may we act the way you see us. For your glory and for the good of 